0: by Regent College, Vancouver, Canada. Experience God's call to a life more abundant with our one to two week summer courses. Sign up today at rgnt.net slash summer. We're in the midst of a series
1: about Russia, communism, and their impacts on Christianity, including American Christianity. The events we're going to discuss today had a huge impact on the American church and global politics. This episode can stand on its own, but when you're done, go back and listen to some earlier ones to get a fuller picture. This is my twin brother, Nick, uh, who you've uh, heard on the show before, and he actually produced some episodes. That's right. Those are probably your favorite ones. Yeah. So, Nick, I need you to tell people your
2: joke? My joke? Which oh the the, the joke? <laughs> okay, all right. So, all right. So there's this guy and he's walking along the street. He's uh he's hungry and he stops and he sees on the, the window there's a sign that says you know clam chowder for sale. And he's like, well that sounds good and I, he walks inside and, and he sits down at this lunch counter and he says to the guy behind the counter. He says you know I'll take some uh, some of that clam chowder and he's like, sorry pal, the guy next to you the last bowl Uh, he sees that he hasn't really touched the bowl of clam chowder and he says you know if you're not going to eat that do you mind if i do and uh he's like well yeah i don't mind he slides it over so the first guy he starts eating that clam chowder like you do and he gets down to the bottom and there's a thumb dislodged and the bottom of that like a human human thumb at the bottom of the bowl and he throws up all the chili back into the bowl and the guy next to him said that's the same reaction i had it's a big build up for a joke it's a big that Nick I say that's Nick's joke because
1: Nick has been telling that joke for 10-15 years 10-15 years (laughs) it's funny in that way that certain jokes like a lot of jokes are because we all kind of feel like life lets us down sometimes and we have to laugh at it yeah and there are jokes like that, that that make us sympathize with the person and then we laugh because it's not us but we know kind of what they're going through there's this famous saying that I ended up talking to our guest about, um, and it's, we tried our best, but it turned out as it always does. That's Which is a bummer, yeah. It is a bummer, but it's, it's kind of like that joke. That we tried our best, like this guy goes in, he wants some clam chowder. He's
2: gonna fix the problem.
1: He's gonna fix the problem, he's gonna go into the diner, he's gonna get the clam chowder, but he's disappointed.
2: Yeah. <laughs> By a thumb at the bottom. Ugh. Okay, <laughs> I'm sorry. That's such a great image. It's just terrible. Yeah.
1: Well, I mean, it's it's fatalistic. And it's it, because of that, it's humorous at the same time. Right? right. We tried our best, but it turns out as it always does.
2: It's facing your humanity.
1: Yeah. And you'll see that concept in a lot of the episodes coming up. But first, we should meet our guest.
3: Uh, I'm Jennifer Yeremeyeva. And I'm the author of two books, uh, Lenin Lives Next Door, Marriage, Martinis, and Mayhem in Moscow, which is a humorous account of my 20 years living in Moscow as an American expatriate. And the other book is um, Have Personality Disorder Will Rule Russia, a pocket guide to Russian history.
1: Now that you know about the Romanovs, the last czars in Russia before communism, we're going to go back a little further to discuss the events leading up to their tragic end and how the Christian church became ingrained and then pulled apart from Russian character. You're listening to the show that uses journalistic tools to look inside the Christian church. We press pause in the culture wars to explore how we got here and how we can do better. I'm Chris Starin, and this is Truths. Back to that quote we started with. We tried our best, but it turned out as it always does. I got a bowl of clam chowder, but it's not what I thought it was. Those ideas take us inside the Russian character. You're going to see it here as we track how Russia went from being a pagan culture to somewhat Christian in 988 AD. And then it turned atheistic in the 20th century. That order again is pagan, Christian, atheist. As you'll see, they start out trying to do their best, but then the outcome leaves something to be desired. That is the religious and political history of Russia. Up first
3: in Russian history, the Vikings. We we need to go back a little bit and say that up to 988, 988, Russia was a pagan country, and it worshipped pagan gods that had mostly come to them from the north, from the Vikings. The Vikings.
1: Boats. Helmets with horns. Like a lot of ancient peoples, the Viking worshipped gods that impacted their everyday life. Is the wind blowing? Well, it must be because of the wind god. Hear a thunder? Well, then somebody probably upset the storm god.
3: And so they were um, very connected with these these deities, and these deities kind of shaped the calendar year, and what's interesting is that they never really went away.
1: Even once they were introduced to Christianity, the residue of these gods stuck around. They loved their small g gods who controlled all these aspects of the natural landscape. Which brings us back to Vladimir, the guy who would convert, I know you can't see this, but that's in air quotes, convert Russians to Christianity.
3: Vladimir was um, a descendant of the Vikings, and he um, was a prince in Kiev, which was on the the mighty Dnieper River. And the Dnieper connected the north of Russia with Byzantium.
1: There were some big words there, so we're going to slow it down a little bit. Kiev is now in Ukraine. Byzantium was the eastern end of the Roman Empire. Vladimir's proximity to Byzantium meant that he could easily trade with them. Modern-day Turkey was the heart of the Byzantine Empire. If you look at Turkey on a map, and why wouldn't you, maps are fascinating, you'll see its geographic importance. The Byzantine Empire connected Russia to the Middle East and the Middle East to Europe. It was the geographic center of ancient society. Vlad wants to do business with these people, right? Trade, commerce, and business are themes that are going to come up time and again over the next few months. Trade is important to our daily lives. To get things that we can't make here, we have to get them from somewhere else. Vlad needed what the Byzantine Empire had, so it might help to have something in common with the people of Byzantium. Like, say, I don't know, a religion? Now, if you and I were on a tour bus, traveling through Russia, you might hear this version of how Vladimir chose Christianity for Russia. So, to tell this part, I'm gonna get on an actual bus. Oh, the tour's about to start.
4: Thank you for riding Russia history best, most excellent tour bus express. I'm Boris, I'll be guide today. Now, Vladimir sent out three different groups, trying to find a religion that worked best for ancient Rus. If you look to left, you see the first group of emissaries. Everybody give them wave. This group was sent to investigate the Muslim religion to see if that would be a good fit for his people.
3: And they say, you know, it's all very powerful and it's great, but there are a few problems and and the big one is you can't drink. And Vladimir famously says, drink is the great joy of the Russian people. So we're not going to have that.
4: That's right. Vlad didn't want to go with Islam because of its ban on alcohol. And we know how much the Russians love their vodka. (laughs) If you look to your right, you'll see the second group of emissaries that Vladimir sent out. Their job was to report back on Catholicism, to go to Rome and see what that was all about. We have any Catholics on the bus? Hello to Catholics in back.
3: And the emissaries from Rome come back, and they said we, we beheld no greatness there. It was all sort of sound and fury, and everybody smelled bad.
4: You might be asking yourself, why did everybody smell bad?
3: They were not very hygienic. Uh, they they didn't uh, they didn't have like running water. It was kind of a primitive uh, hygienic situation in Northern Europe at the time, as opposed to in the Black Sea and in. Um, in Byzantium where they had all the sort of Roman aqueducts and running water and they believed in steam baths and and stuff like that so um, it was I I think it probably didn't smell very good.
4: But don't worry, we made sure there were none of those people on the bus today. (laughs) So Islam didn't allow for alcohol and European Catholics didn't smell so great. So what did that leave? No, this is a special treat. If you look to your left, you will see something we do not see every day. It's the third delegation. This one explored the Orthodox Church.
1: I should say that Orthodox means a lot of different things in Christianity. It can mean that you stick with traditional biblical doctrine, like Jesus is God, the Trinity, etc. You're keeping with the agreed upon historic traditional views. Your views are therefore Orthodox. However, just to keep it interesting, there is also a branch of Christianity known as Orthodox. I posted a video on the website that explains a lot about Orthodox Christianity.
4: Because Orthodox Christianity is its own conversation, and I have to get you back to the hotel soon, so we're going to skip it.
1: Right. Just remember that in this episode, when we say Orthodox, we're talking about the religion.
4: Hey, excuse me, pal. Is this my tour or yours? Oh, yes. I'm sorry. Go ahead. So the delegation returns from inspecting the Orthodox Church in Byzantium.
3: But the emissaries who came back from Byzantium said that they had walked into the Hagia Sophia, the great cathedral in Constantinople, and fallen to the floor and uh, proclaimed that there was nothing like it on earth and that surely God dwelt there.
1: They'd found it, the religion that they were going to follow, the one that tickled their fancy, the perfect fit for the Russian people. Now, that's a great tidy little story, right? Something you might hear on a tour bus of Moscow. But you know what? It's not what really happened. It's not? No, I'm sorry, that's not what happened. You know what, I'm getting off this tour bus. This just isn't that helpful.
4: Hey, there are no refunds. Okay.
1: (gasps) What really happened is a bit more complex. Basically, there was a lot of trade and crossover between Byzantium and Kiev. Remember how he said that trade was really important? Well, Byzantium had the goods that the Russians wanted. And Vladimir looked at Byzantium and said, Maybe I should just take it over. Have it in my collection. Except, he wasn't able to conquer it. He lost. he was able to strike up a deal.
3: And so the peace treaty was basically that the the Byzantine emperor would get 6,000 troops um, from a Varangian guard, and that Vladimir would not only marry the emperor's sister, Princess Anna, but he would also um, adopt uh, Christianity. Christianity came to Russia as part of a peace treaty. Vladimir got a wife, he got some
1: troops, and hostilities ended. If... His country also accepted Christianity. That is not the best way for someone to come to God. Kind of like a shotgun wedding for a whole country. Vladimir was now locked in. If there was going to be peace in his country, they had to become Christians. So he became a Christian of sorts. Now, he was officially a part of the Orthodox Church.
3: But Vladimir was baptized in Christonosis down in Crimea. Which is
1: just south of Ukraine on the Baltic Sea. It's a peninsula. You've probably heard a lot about Crimea in the news. It's important for a number of reasons. One of which is because this is where Vladimir was baptized. Crimea
3: has a strong connection to the country's religious history and there's a very large cathedral that commemorates that act of course he's going to be zealous and want his people to know about his faith right
1: he's going to want them to know this jesus
3: that he knows to be forgiven of their sins like he is right and then he returned to kiev and at the point of his sword demanded that everybody else be baptized he forced
1: them to be baptized or die for resisting We know that this is hardly the only time in history that a person was forced to change their beliefs or face death. It happened on both sides of the Crusades, during the Reformation, when communist Russia and China forced atheism, and this year in Myanmar when Buddhists killed Muslims and Christians. As you'll see, across the next several months, Christianity plays the role of both invader and liberator in history. This is obviously one of the invader moments. I'll go on record as saying not only is conversion by sword a bad idea, i.e. immoral and against the Bible, it almost never works. Like, for every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction, right? We can almost see atheistic communism as the reaction to this moment. It seemed like a great idea, but it was going to backfire in some key ways.
3: They tried their best, but it happened as it always does. So he baptized Russia at the point of a sword, and he burned the idols, um, the sort of carved images of Perun and Volus and all these other gods. He burned their idols. Remember how the people held onto their Viking gods,
1: those idols based on natural forces. Vladimir wanted those destroyed, kind of like an Old Testament king, but. People found ways around it and meshed their Christian ideas with those of their pagan forefathers.
3: And it's interesting because um, people people agreed to become Christian, and within about 50 years, it was it was very much embedded in the population. But the people, particularly women continued to worship uh the old gods and they passed on the knowledge of these gods and their traditions to their children and did it uh in code and so if you look at um slavic embroidery all of the uh symbols of the old gods are there uh hiding in plain sight and and really the the two faiths became kind of coexistent, particularly in the countryside and it's a, a term in Russian called duoverria or dual faith. and uh, it continues to today. They combine their old religion with the new and that's not unheard of in
1: religious culture. You can see that same thing in Jeremiah 44, one of the most haunting chapters in the Old Testament for me. Let's go back to Vladimir and the conversion by sword. That is not something that the Eastern Orthodox Church is particularly known for, according to Jennifer. Remember though that this was partially an economic decision. Converting to Christianity in that era brought with it some social benefits to the average person. Much of Europe at the time was some form of Catholic or Eastern Orthodox. Protestantism wouldn't be around for another 500 years. The Crusades, depending on when you began counting, hadn't started yet. Russia was still a bit of a backwater. Not really all that hip. Becoming Christian was like telling Europe, hey, we're kind of like you guys. Look how modern we are. We believe in this Jesus guy too.
3: Part of Vladimir's um, attempt to bring... What was then called Kiev and Rus into the community of nations of Europe. He wanted his Russia to be integrated, and it was. Um, it was. Um, there were a lot of intermarriages of the royal family. For example, Princess Anna of Kiev married a, a French king, and at the ceremony, she was the only one who knew how to write her name of all the royals who were there. So it was a very sophisticated society, and it was certainly well integrated into the uh, sort of European community of nations. And by which I mean sort of uh, France and the Holy Roman Empire and and those countries. Aside from the whole conversion by the sword deal, things were looking pretty great
1: for the newly modernized Russia. This is kind of like their debutante ball. Finally, Russia gets a break. After all the blood and gore of the Romanov story, it's nice and on a happy note, right? Uh, okay, I guess that, that's, that's the end of the show. The Truce Podcast is listener, is listener supported. Special thanks to,
2: hey, hey Chris, I'm sorry, I really need to interrupt.
1: Guys, I'm. Nick, I'm just recording the credits here. This is my brother, Nick. Yes. Uh, yeah.
2: Hey guys, yeah, I can't. You can't wait. There's somebody at the door. They just burst in. And I, I, I what did I say about the Mongols? You, you said never. What let did the I Mon- say about the you Mongols? said they never let the Mongols in, but they they just broke right through the gate. <sighs> okay, fine. Um, he didn't like my tone. Um, apparently, he wants to talk to you because everything belongs to him now. I mean, you you, you and me, Russia.
1: <sighs> okay, okay. Um, sorry, listeners. Uh, we're gonna have to go to a commercial or something. Uh, maybe there won't be a commercial, hey, depending wipe on. Wipe your how
2: feet. It. He's not wiping. He's his not
1: wiping. Feet. Guys, he's not wiping his feet. Uh, we're gonna it's have a to. House rule. Well, it's a house rule, like, dang it. Okay, fine. We're gonna uh, just listen to these commercials. We'll, we'll be right back.
0: This episode is brought to you in part by Thomas Nelson, publisher of Grieve, Breathe, Receive. Finding a Faith Strong Enough to Hold Us Written and narrated by Pastor Steve Carter Grieve, Breathe, Receive Those three words became a profound mantra for Steve Carter during a season of deep healing the kind that comes after painful trauma Grieve, Breathe, Receive is available everywhere audiobooks are sold Visit thomasnelson.com audio to learn more
1: Okay, uh, where were we?
2: Uh, The Mongol hordes.
1: Yes, yes, the Mongol hordes. Do you think you can hold them back long enough for me to do this story? Give them a soda or tell them your joke.
2: Yeah, I'll do my best. Hey, guys!
1: Okay, back to Russia. They're about to enter a pretty dark period, comparable to the Dark Ages in Europe,
3: where a sophisticated culture lost its edge. But of course, what happens in the 13th century is that the Tatar Mongols come and they uh, invade Russia and remain for about 250 years. And at the time, the church um, is given a very unique role to play by the Mongols. The Mongols have this massive empire and they sort of administer it very efficiently because they are able to uh, use local princes and local prelates to do a lot of the administrative work. And so they, the deal that they made with the priests was that the, priest could re- the churches could remain open and people could continue to worship the Christian God as long as the priests ensured that everybody made their uh, respectful obeisances to the great Khan.
1: You can keep doing your Christian thing. Just remember who rules this earthly kingdom. That's kind of the deal they struck. Russia at this time was not really one unified nation as we think of a nation today. It was really more of a loose structure of
3: separate kingdoms led by different rulers who ruled over city-states. There was a prince of Novgorod, there was a prince of Moscow, there was a prince of Kiev and of Suzdal and Vladimir. And all of these princes were related in some way, but they each had autonomy over a smaller um, sort of part of, of their world. And they were all accountable to Khan, paying taxes, tributes, and doing
1: the administrative work, that kind of thing. Russia itself was kind of disconnected, not really unified, because it was ruled by all of these mini-rulers, not unlike Western Europe in the Middle Ages. If, say, I lived in Los Angeles, I could take my taxes to the mini ruler by the beach. Thank you, my dude. Whereas a person in Minnesota would take their taxes to their mini king. Well, how about you stay around for some hot dish then? My friend in Georgia might go to the mini king
2: of Atlanta. Well, it is the greatest honor this fine day to take your hard-earned money.
1: They would all then send that money to the Khan, who ruled from a distance. It's not like they had a strong federal government like we have in the U.S. today that binds all of these states together. Though they paid tribute to the same conqueror, they were not really that connected, giving the church an open door. Because despite all of this turnover in government and the fact that the country itself was not unified, the constant in their lives was the church. This... Faith. No matter who came or went in power, the church was still there. That steadfastness gained them political and social power, just like it did in Western Europe in the Middle Ages. Until... The Mongols decided to pack their bags and go.
3: The Mongols eventually kind of run out of steam, as all empires do. And the, um, the city-state that emerges as the center of opposition to the Mongols is, of course, Moscow. And the Grand Prince of Moscow uh, is very adept at collecting tribute for the Khan. That's his job, is to collect up taxes and tributes and then bring it down to the great Khan in Sarai, which is in the southern part of, of Russia. Uh, And, and of course, the the great prince of Moscow manages to skim off some of the cream. Um, And he's very much uh, in partnership with the bishop um, and the metropolitan doing this. But um, one prince uh, eventually emerges as very powerful at the end of the 15th century, and this is Ivan III, who comes to be known as Ivan the Great. And what Ivan does is he's ruling during a time when the Ottoman Turks – Uh, sack Constantinople and take over. Constantinople, by the way, was the center of the Byzantine Empire and the center of the world, really. It's now called Istanbul. And so a number of clergymen, Eastern Orthodox clergy, flee to Moscow um, uh, to, to sort of avoid persecution by the Islamic Turks. Constantinople was the home of the Eastern Orthodox Church. Now that the Muslim Turks moved into
1: Constantinople... The Orthodox Church needed a home, and so
3: they settled in Moscow, thanks to Ivan. And suddenly Moscow has become a very important um, part of the Eastern Orthodox Church. It's become basically the uh, capital of, of the Eastern Orthodox Church. And Ivan puts a seal on this by marrying one of the last descendants of a Byzantine ruler. You see how marriage played a key role in world politics? And she brings with her all of the trappings of the Byzantine um, Christianity, but as well the symbols of uh, imperial uh, Rome. And so uh, she brings the double-headed eagle, and she brings architects who build these magnificent churches in the Moscow Kremlin. And it's thanks to Sophia and Ivan that uh, Moscow becomes what's known as the Third Rome. The Third Rome. Guys, this concept is really important. By labeling themselves the New
1: Rome, they were declaring what a great power they were by playing off the reputation of the Old Rome. Rome, of course, was the home of the Catholic Church. Constantinople, in its heyday, was the home of the Eastern Roman Empire and the Orthodox Church. Now, Moscow, by welcoming these guys in, was the new home of the Orthodox Church. Like the ancient Romans, they were not only an empire, but also the home of a major
3: branch of Christianity. In fact, the word Tsar in Russian means Caesar. Uh, So the idea that you've had first the Roman Empire based in Rome, then the Eastern Roman Empire based in Constantinople. And then all of the imperial and religious sort of orthodoxy has come to Moscow. And of course, they say there will never be another Rome. Uh, Moscow will be the third Rome and that's it. Uh, So we'll see what happens. The Rome thing is an interesting comparison. Think about Roman
1: rulers. I mean, they were tough, brutal in some cases. Very into the whole hierarchy thing. They were emperors who were seen as gods. Then came the Mongols.
3: Well, I think the Mongols left a very powerful legacy of uh, a very vertical power um, and a very kind of... uh, slavish devotion to the ruler. The great Khan was sort of worshiped as almost a semi-divine being. And the Tsar is too. And the Tsars throughout the ages will be very reluctant to sort of give that up. Um, As God's holy anointed, they are considered above regular humanity. If your leader is a god
1: or is akin to a god, it can be hard to argue with them. And there's a tension there between the semi-divine leader and the church. Like I said, after the Mongols, the church was one of the only stable things in the lives of Russians. It was their unifying institution, which could make an authoritarian leader a little nervous because these worshipers might want to listen to the church instead of to them. There was a struggle between the Orthodox church and politicians, just as there was between the Catholic church and Western European leaders.
3: Peter the Great, you know, whenever you're studying Russian history, it's kind of like you're going along and along and along, and then, boom, we have Peter the Great, and he changes everything. Um, And one of the things that he does is to lessen the power of the church. Um, The Eastern Orthodox Church is generally ruled by a patriarch. It's the highest um, office. And the patriarch is in charge of, like, a country or a region. So it's like in the United States, there would be a patriarch of New York, Los Angeles, one of St. Louis, all
1: the major cities. And these guys would have some serious influence that could come into conflict with political power. Maybe the governor of New Jersey tells the people, Hey,
0: citizens, we're going to war here.
1: And the patriarch of Newark says,
0: This war is unjust. Forget about it. If
1: you're a normal, run-of-the-mill person from New Jersey, what are you going to do? Follow the governor? It'd be a shame if something uh, happened to your taxes. Or your spiritual leader, especially if that spiritual leader plays the God card.
0: God told me this is what he wants.
1: Now your choice is not between the governor and some patriarch. It's between the governor, Hey, uh, vote for me or I'll bust your face. And God. Like I said, the same thing was happening with the Catholic Church and the leaders in Western Europe. People, normal folks like you and me, were caught in the middle. As much as he wanted to, the Russian Tsar couldn't really play the God card. Not in the same way. The solution, then, was obvious. They to the power of the Church. Or don't, I don't care. Peter the Great kept expanding his empire. And one of the most important cities for Christianity was Moscow because the Orthodox Church had moved there. Being that the church was there, Moscow had a powerful patriarch. But the patriarchs die every day. If you don't want to deal with the hassle of a power struggle, just don't replace your adversary. That's exactly what Peter the Great
3: did. And he relegates the church into kind of a government department, just like the Ministry of Defense. And in Peter's mind, probably far less important than uh, the Ministry of Defense was the Holy Synod. The church office was relegated to a government building, made a part of the bureaucracy, the Holy
1: Synod, which means that they were now officially under the oversight of the Tsar. And it remained that way until the fall of the Romanovs. Which is why, in our story about the Romanovs, I said that Nicholas II was in charge of the church. Because he was. It was just another one of his departments. Like, we might have a department for war, or taxation, fisheries, health, road maintenance. There was essentially a department for the church. Which doesn't sound so bad. It gives the church stability, and some of the friction between the church and the state. But it makes me think of something Stephen Mansfield said in season one of this podcast, that one of the roles of the church is to speak to power, to have what he called prophetic
0: distance. I have to be able to speak truth to them, but not want anything from him or her. I, I, in other words, I, I need to be able to speak truth, uh, help them spiritually, but, but you're, you're, not, you're not you can't be bought off. You can't be... Uh, manipulated.
1: Without that prophetic distance, the church becomes just another yes man to power. The church then struggles to question power because it relies on the powerful for its paycheck. Just like if a major Wall Street bank sponsored this podcast, it would be hard for me to do a negative story about them if I was on their payroll. The other downside is that if the church and the state are one and the same, if one stumbles, so does the other like two people on a tandem bike. If one loses their balance or steers in the wrong direction, they're taking the other person with them. We see this in the American church. There's a big movement out there to say that the United States is a Christian nation. But that means that if the United States stumbles, makes a bad call, or dare I say, does something evil, the church stumbles as well. We'll take a deep dive into that question in a few weeks. As for Russia, it's a nation that came to Christ by the sword. It houses a church that millions of people look to for wisdom and comfort. The church was just one of the many departments overseen by an authoritarian government. A government that refused to hear the voice of the common people who needed help. Better working conditions, labor laws, safety, protections for the poor. If the government controlled the church, but that same government did a bad job, How would that reflect on a church that lacked prophetic distance? Is it really any wonder that when the czars fell, the church went with them? We'll continue that story in two weeks. Thanks again to our guest. She's the author of the books, Lenin Lives Next Door, and the fabulous Have Personality Disorder Will Rule Russia. There are links to both on our website at trucepodcast.com and in your show notes right now. Once you're there, you'll find our vast archive, links to our social media accounts, email list, and more including links to my films, Bringing Out Bobby and Between the Walls, and my book, Cradle Robber. Thanks to Nick Steren and Josh Griffith for lending their voices to this episode. Before we go, let me ask you, have you ever heard of a Christian podcast doing a story like this one? Having fun with Russian history? Together, you and I are raising the bar of what Christian podcasts can be. We're telling the world that Christians can be intelligent, can ask good questions, and aren't afraid to call a spade a spade what you're listening to what you're participating in is unique in the christian sphere together with your donation of any amount we can make this thing even better i could do this thing full time and maybe hire more producers if you donate a little each month on patreon.com you'll get special bonus materials not available anywhere else Thanks for listening. I'm Chris Sterren and this is Truce.
0: This episode was brought to you in part by the Areopagus podcast, two clergy of different traditions. Father Andrew Stephen Damick and Michael Landsman, discuss encounters of historic Christianity with other religious traditions. How do we engage with those who believe differently?